The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey everybody, welcome to episode two of the Cinematography Podcast here from Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California. I'm Ben Rock. And I'm Ilya Friedman. How's it going, Ilya? <laughs> really? You're going to ask me that? <laughs> <laughs> it's going pretty well. Hey, episode two, we had a really, really good feedback to episode one, and uh, I'm really excited to be back doing this again. Yeah, thank you everybody who checked out episode one. Hopefully this is the start of more things. I, I always listen to uh, older podcasts when I'm a fan of something and listen to the first podcast and go, man, they had no idea where that shit was going. We'll we'll check in at episode like 15. So yeah, we'll see. This is kind of a pretty big week here for Hot Rod, correct? Yeah, it is kind of a big week here, actually. We're doing an expansion of our showroom. We've got some uh, new grip and lighting. Some new lights came in from Felix, which are very cool. And uh, also there was a couple of uh, new camera announcements. There was uh, two very affordable uh, 4K cameras. Well, one actually was announced last year. It's the Blackmagic Cinema Camera 4K or Blackmagic Production Camera. Uh, that was announced at NAB last year, uh, but oh, now I, it started shipping. I thought in an alternate universe that was supposed to have already been out in July. Uh, well, let's just say it was a little bit delayed. And here it is, 2000, 2014, end of February. It is shipping. We've received a couple of cameras now, and I understand there's a couple more on their way. Uh, But also in the past week or so, at the beginning of this month, the new Panasonic GH4 camera was announced, also a 4K capable camera. And uh, it's rumored to have a, a, you know, a very affordable price point. So we're going to be looking at a couple of, you know, first time ever 4K cameras that could be afforded by the DSLR crowd. Yeah, and they they dropped the cost of the uh, of the Blackmagic camera by like a grand, didn't they? They did. Yeah, twenty nine ninety five. I mean, we're we're dealers for both Panasonic and uh, Blackmagic, and I got to say that over the past couple of weeks, we've been getting a lot of inquiries, a lot of questions from people saying, "Well, what's the difference?" And I don't want to get too far into the tech of all this stuff, or or even about four K. But uh, in short, Blackmagic has a raw recording mode, so it's a four K raw. It also has a Super thirty five sensor with a uh, uh, global shutter, as it's uh, commonly known, and it comes in an EF lens mount. Uh, by by contrast, the Panasonic GH4 uh, has a rolling shutter. Uh, yeah. It does not record uh, in in a raw mode, but it does have some cine gammas. It also has a MFT mount or Micro Four Thirds, which allows you to use PL mount lenses and all kinds of other glass. And they haven't released the price point on the uh, on the GH4 yet, have they? They haven't, but I have heard that uh, middle of uh, March we're going to get a price point, and it's been uh, rumored to be around two thousand. So uh, oh. we'll, we'll see. Is that including like the little four K module that you got to put it on to? No, but no, and that's just a rumor. I actually have no idea what the price is, but um, we are we do have a sign up list for people who are who are interested, so they can get on our list. And as soon as we know more, we will email them and let I, them know. Can I be a dick about both of these cameras a little bit? Yeah, I I appreciate the fact that they're both out there, and I think that they're both cool. But I think that both of them have uh, mistakenly uh, come to believe that what we want is a camera with other stuff that you have to attach it to, like they're horning in on the DSLR market, but but we have to get extra batteries and modules and little kludgy stuff that we have to stick all over it. And, you know, what I personally love about the DSLR universe is, is how compact and how small you can make everything. 
and how uncomplicated it can be. If I wanted to have all kinds of cables and batteries and stuff, I would go for a you know for a different camera. Yeah, I can I can see that. Uh, I've had a lot of people say that. Boy, I wish that there was the feature set of the GH4 in a larger you know sort of like form factor camera. Uh, but to what you were just saying, um, the wonderful thing about DSLRs is that it's small and compact and self-contained. And I think that you might really like the GH4 because you have the ability to you know format your cards inside the camera. You have a nice flip-out monitor. It's it's relatively small. It's it's you know 7D size ish smaller a little, smaller, a little yeah. smaller than that so well, all the lumix cameras have been pretty small yeah they have i think that you would really like it i think that you should uh you know take one out for a test drive and when when it's available i i definitely will i mean i think that uh i i've been a fan of the lumix cameras in general not a big enough fan to have purchased one yet but uh, i remember the gh1 you shot a short actually that won an instant film competition of some of that some is sort. true yeah yeah you so. you lent me two gh1s that that was way back in 2009 if i'm not mistaken yeah so. that was 2009 it was yeah. called shut up i said shut up written by julianne cross really dark awesome and who shot that that was shot by one of my really good friends and someone who i can't wait to get on the podcast walt lloyd asc yeah. Walt is awesome. I actually really hope that he does come on the podcast. It, it makes me happy to know that the guy who shot Shortcuts and Sex, Lies, and Videotape and Alien Raiders, let's be honest, yeah. also shot Shut Up, I Said Shut Up. On GH1. So. Or, or as the instant film people refer to it, the movie with the eyeball shot. <laughs> I, I don't know what shot you're talking about. I, I unfortunately, too many years have passed and the, the eyeball shot is not in my memory. Eyeball on a fork, dude. Oh, oh, gotcha. Yeah, I don't know how I could have forgotten that. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so let's talk about today's show. Today's show, we're going to be interviewing Chris Komen, ASC, who we teased on the last episode with his awesome war story. I love it so much. That is a great war story. Uh, He shares all kinds of uh, fascinating tidbits of information. Yeah, I think Chris is uh, awesome, and I can't say it enough. He shot two, not one, but two Phantasm films. As a giant horror nerd, I know that 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 makes you incredibly warm inside. It does. And actually, Chris goes through uh, elaborate detail about how he did some of the lighting for the Phantasm movies, which I think uh, a lot of the people who are listening to this might find fascinating because, you know, it's not easy to light a, uh, what was it, like a four-inch cylindrical reflective Ball. mirrored object. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, hearing uh, Bill Claggis ASC. He, he did a... A lighting workshop for the um, for the local 600 and he was doing his demonstration with a bunch of different balls and uh, lighting them to show you like you know the effects of like you know how much the light would wrap around with diffusion and different different things and he held up this mirrored silver reflective ball and he was like you know when the producers give you, give you this you just like throw up your hands and walk away well Chris couldn't walk away. Chris, you know, Chris had yes. to do it. That was part of the whole. The, the Phantasm, whole. for those of you who haven't seen it, firstly, turn off this podcast. Go watch the Phantasm. Go at least watch Phantasm 1. It prominently features a hovering ball that will uh, shoot out blades that stick into your head and drain your body of blood from the brain of Don Coscarelli, one of the true auteurs in the film world today director of john dies at the end bubba hotep well we couldn't have started off with someone better than uh as a horror dp or someone who might be known for their their work in horror uh chris is a really nice guy and really really talented and uh he did something pretty amazing with making that uh silver sphere uh look the way it looked in the phantasm movies yeah quite a challenge and he'll talk all about it 
So here we go, Chris Komen, ASC. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras with Chris Komen, cinematographer and cinematography teacher at USC. And most excitingly for me, the cinematographer of not one, but two Phantasm films. So we'll be talking a lot about that. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I have a theory, and maybe I'll be proven right or wrong about this theory, but I believe that some DPs come at it from a point of view of lighting, and then it's not that the lens is an arbitrary decision, but it's lens to maximize the lighting. And some guys are composition guys or girls who know what they want in the frame, and then they're painting like within the line. I think that's true. I think there are definitely two different schools probably so which which one are you though it probably depends on how you got there you know I mean mm-hmm. if you were, came up as an operator you're probably more about the frame and if you came up through electric you're probably more about the light I came through electric mm-hmm. and the lighting is very important to me but I think of the whole process because when a director rehearses the actors and we start staging the scene whether some directors will say this is how I want the blocking some directors will say what do you think and then I tell them what I think about the blocking um, some of it happens in pre-production. Camera blocking or actor blocking or both? All. It's all a dance. So really? Sometimes it's in pre-production. When you scout a location, you walk in, even without the actors, and say, well, how is this going to work for us? If we had to shoot here, how do we use this space? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they can enter here. Here's the door. Let's have them enter here, and we do this. And you think, well, that doesn't really work. So then usually I go and stand in the complete opposite side and say, well, if we bring in a fake wall over here, we could have them enter here and have we use the space this way. Mm-hmm. And we make the space work. We may not have to shoot there. We may not want to shoot there. But I do think that you have to be prepared in case you get, you end up in every location you see. You might say, this is terrible. I want something else. And then the last minute, you lose the place you loved. Now you're in the place you didn't like. You better have a plan. So I approach every location that way. But then the process, you block it, you place your camera. Before you can light it, you have to know what's in the shot. Mm-hmm. You place the camera. And for me, camera placement is probably mostly about the distance to the subject, that proximity of the audience to the subject. Are you across the street with a kind of a voyeuristic look or are you in real close? Are you mm-hmm. dirty over someone's shoulder or are you between two people so that you're on a single clean? And where are you putting the audience? How intimate is that? And then the lens choice comes after that is, okay, so we know we want to be in close, but how much do we want to see? Do I yeah. want to see the world and go really wide? Do I want to just kind of be com- comfortably normal or do I want to focus on something? Do I want to be just on the side of a face or something? And then while you're making those decisions, while I'm making those decisions, a lot of those are recommendations because directors can say, no, that's a ridiculous idea. You know, yeah. Hopefully we're in sync from our early talks so mm-hmm. that it's not too ridiculous. But I have an idea about the lighting in mind. Yeah, but it's, but and, it does sound like you know, you're saying that you come at it from the composition first. I come at it from camera placement first. Yeah. But I also, the lighting is always in my head. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've done scenes where I thought, oh, I would love to have a bunch of condors out here with 18K streaming through the windows. But at the end of the day, I'm going with natural light because instead of having six hours to rig it and all the money to for all the crew and all the equipment, I don't have the resource. So yeah. I'm going to, it looks kind of nice. It's a different look. But it looks kind of nice, and if we put the camera in the right place, we can take advantage of the natural beauty of the space and Interesting. go with that. I mean, I'm actually starting to elaborate on this theory, which is to say that if you started in the electric department, you're more of a lens guy, and if you started mm-hmm. in the camera department, because the person who actually started me thinking about this was Walt Lloyd, mm-hmm. and Walt Lloyd started as a camera operator, 
of all the DPs I've ever worked with, he is the one who is most excited about lighting. Like that is the thing that like he cannot wait to light. That's he loves the lighting part. Again, it's not the composition isn't important, but he really wants to get that lighting exactly the way he wants it. I think the thing that's exciting about lighting for a cinematographer is let's go back to film. In a film world, lighting is the thing that you have control over, really without any other cooks, mm-hmm. at least until dailies the next day. Until anybody sees it, you know, nobody had an opinion because they trusted you and you did your thing and, and you got to do it on your own without people telling you what to do. Yeah, not no more. In the, yeah, and in today's world, there's a lot more cooks. And then the question is, well, which monitor do you want to look good on? Because, you know, they're, they're rarely yeah. do they all match. You know, camera placement is always, a, it's either a director dictates it or it's a collaboration, but the director signs off on it. The director's got the final say. Yeah. And it's not to say that I, I don't consult directors. I always would, if I think I'm going to bring somebody into a scene in silhouette mm-hmm. or do something that's really extreme or have some light that comes so hot through the set that just burns out, I always let the director know in advance. I don't want him to be shocked. And I have a reason why. Mm-hmm. I always think it's interesting that pretty much everybody who's there to support the director's execution of his vision has to have a reason why they're doing stuff. At least you have to be able to articulate a reason. It may not even be the reason, but it's, you have to be able to articulate it. Directors get away with being able to say, well, it feels right. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I may feel it right, but I have to have a reason. Because if I don't have a reason and we have, we have a different of a difference opinion, director's going to make his choice. So I have to find a way to, if I want to have a, what I would consider a successful collaboration where I get to have some input into the creative process, I have to be able to articulate why I think something's right. And I've had conversations with directors where I've asked the question, do you want to be here on a 50 millimeter lens? Do you want to be here on a 40? What do you? And they'll say, what do you think? I said, I'd like to be here on a 40 and, or, or 29. It's getting close. And, and they'll say, well, I want to be a little further back on a 50. And I'll give my reason why I thought the closer was better. And I've had directors say, well, let's try it both ways. But we don't have time to try it both ways. And I also know that there's a really good chance that you're going to use what you want to do so let's not play the game let's let's get the shot you want and I can get on board with that and, and we'll work with that I'm not a fan of just shooting stuff to have a lot of stuff I really believe in making choices I believe in knowing what you want when you go in mm-hmm. being open to serendipitous happy accidents but but really but really going in with an idea of what's important at every moment of the story and what is the story you're trying to tell and motivating what you're doing from what essentially starting with what the actors want because what the actors want will dictate how they behave how they behave drives the camera and the light or at least the camera and then the light mm-hmm. is the environment and you have everything interacting and you have a kind of a, a dialectic that happens between you know good and evil or right and wrong or whatever and and <laughs> are um, the actors the evil in this no, no. The sto- I, was, I was meant the story i didn't mean the yeah <laughs> the camera is the good and the actors. i didn't mean that no i meant whatever the protagonist wants and whether they get it or not if the protagonist doesn't get what he wants the scene continues yeah and if he gets what he wants it's over unless there's something else he wants too <laughs> because yeah you know they always say you know when you're looking for your keys they're always in the last place you look because why would you keep looking once you found them yeah once the protagonist gets what he wants his journey's over I think it's part of that, and I think that's what drives everything. And sometimes those questions can inspire us to make bold choices. I remember, I remember prepping a film years ago that I didn't end up shooting because it schedule conflicted with my planned wedding. So I thought, you know what, <laughs> that's more important to me yeah, than yeah. the movie. But there was a scene, and it was a big scene with a lot of people in a party. But somebody felt very alienated. The guy felt alienated in this party. And when we were scouting the house. I proposed the idea, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know if they did it, but I proposed the idea that camera starts far on the other side of the room with a lot of people in the room, 
and kind of just slowly through the course of the scene, all the dialogue happens kind of off camera. Camera just pushes into a close-up of this guy. And you just see the bodies interacting and moving, kind of like he's engulfed in a sea of people. You don't really see anybody else but him. It's all his reaction, and you hear it. I thought it was interesting. I thought it, it paralleled what he was going through emotionally. The director liked the idea. Again, I don't know if he did it or not. You didn't see the film? I didn't see the film. No. It wasn't for any reason. It wasn't like bitterness. Or it was just. It was just. <laughs> Screw just, you for I making just, a movie yeah. when I'm getting married. I just haven't. I just haven't seen it. But that idea came really was driven from the actor. What was going on with the actor and mm-hmm. trying to use the camera in a way to help emphasize what the actor was feeling to the audience. I love film, and I think the great thing about film is you can move so quickly with it. I can certainly. Where I work faster because I'm not encumbered by all the stuff. And in multiple times, when it gets down to the wire and, and been under a crunch of time, like, what are we going to cut? What are we going to cut? We have to make our day. What are we going to cut? My first reaction is cut the video tap. Without the video tap, we can make the day. <laughs> when you have that monitor and you start having a bunch of people kibitzing over looking at an image, it just slows things down. And so film in a way, if there's a trust between the director and the cinematographer, it just lets you move that much quicker. And yeah. so that's that's what I love about film. And I, I do love the way it looks, but, but I'm also a realist. In the world today, you know, it's my last film was on film. I will probably do another film on film, but it's not like my next one's likely to be on HD and it's just the way it is. So Yeah, yeah. Are you finding at least that the cameras are meeting your needs in the H D world? In or? the digital world. I think the great thing about H D if I, if something excites me about it, it's the size of the cameras, the potential for the size of the cameras. The fact that you have the little GoPro that you can put anywhere or mm-hmm. an iPhone for that matter, if you want to grab that shot. I wasn't excited about the F thirty five or the Genesis, they make great pictures, but they're big. And if you're going to be big and you're going to have that full kind of studio configuration, then shoot film. Mm-hmm. But when I'm looking at the shelf over there and I see those uh, DSLRs that you can just stick down, instead of spending a couple thousand dollars on a crash box so you protect your camera, just put a couple thousand dollar camera down and let it get destroyed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you don't need the crash box and get another one. The technology, that's what's kind of great. You're able to put the camera in places you couldn't put it before and get a really good image. That's exciting to me. And accessibility, I guess, is exciting. I like that people have access to it, but unfortunately, what I think is missing from the process now that people have access is people say, well, I can do it, I have the means, I'm going to make my film. And they maybe don't go through the development process that everybody had to go through before when you had to cajole people to get money. Yeah. And so you don't have somebody asking you, just asking the questions. What about what happens to this character at this point? And so you don't answer those questions. You just think you make your movie, but in the end, you make a bad movie. Or you make a movie that has a story gap because you didn't take the time to solve the story problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Then no technology is going to fix that problem. Yeah, yeah. It's the part of the puzzle that requires the least amount of raw materials is the writing, and it's also the one that often gets the least attention. When because people are in a rush, they're like, "I can do it," and I have the camera, and I got my friends, and we have a barn. Let's put on a show, mm-hmm. you know. But they should focus on getting the story right. For what every everybody says about the studio process, and people criticize about the homogeneity or whatever of too many cooks. But just by asking those questions, it forces the filmmakers to answer those questions so you can proceed knowing the answers you have to have that pre-production that process that development process it's crucial 
to knowing what you're doing when you're doing it. Now, where in a perfect world, if someone's making a feature and they want you to shoot it, in a perfect world, what point in the process do you want to come in? And what what part of the story are you generally focusing on when you're looking at a script and saying, like, here's the arc of the story, here's the arc of this character, and here's how I'm going to light it, here's how I'm going to photograph it and demonstrate that? In a perfect world, they would pay me for the whole process, too, <laughs> you know, which would be yeah. great. But barring that, as early as possible, if I can read drafts of the script before it's done I love it I mean I can ask questions maybe I'm not making suggestions maybe they're you know it's not really my place to give suggestions on story fixes but I certainly ask questions as I'm reading if I don't understand how something fits together or how something leads to something else I can ask it as a question and then they can realize that maybe there's something that needs to be addressed in fact there's a film that I'm going to shoot if everything goes well we'll start January 15th which is quite a ways off I mean now it's what is it it's May so we're talking seven months from Mm -hmm. now or eight months whatever it is and I read probably a year ago a draft, and I read another draft a little while ago, and started thinking about like, what is this movie going to look like, and how is the camera going to help put the audience where they want to be? I mean, the camera really, I think of it as the audience's point of view. How does the audience interact with the characters in the situation, in the setting, and how involved are they, and what are they seeing? And and as I'm reading, I'm trying to understand the relationships of the, of the characters to what they want also. It's not so much about the plot, it's about the subtext, what's happening, what's the story really about, Mm -hmm. and start thinking about that. Some of the visual stuff, to be honest with you, happens on the day. (laughs) It happens when, you know, you're you're shooting at this time of day and there's a certain kind of light that's happening and and I look at it and say, okay, I can tell this story doing this or doing that and and using, I'm not a huge fan of blocking out all nature and starting from scratch. I, I think there are stories that require that, but I think... If you're shooting a film on location, you're not. Uh, stages are different, but if you're on location, it makes sense to pick the locations that work for the story and use them for what they offer. It's also efficient that way. If it looks great, don't do anything. But if it looks great and you know that the scene is going to take eight hours, you better be able to maintain it. You you don't want to have it look spectacular, but in ten minutes it's going to change. Yeah, and, the sun's all gone. Yeah, and if you're not prepared to maintain that look or to capitalize on what's going to happen. You know, then you end up with something that looks kind of random and maybe doesn't help tell the story. It just becomes more of a capturing. And I, I think, I think cinematography, I think all filmmaking is, is really about crafting the images, crafting the sound, crafting the performances, crafting everything to help convey the story to the audience. And so, so you want to at least be able to identify what's good and then shape or remove whatever isn't good, mm-hmm. so that you get to the essence of what you're trying to communicate. Give me a little bit of your background. What started you on the path to becoming a cinematographer? I know you said that you were in the electrical department. I noticed that you were in the electrical department of Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I was. I actually shot second unit uncredited on that. It was a hard show, but it was a lot of fun. I saw that in the theater in a midnight screening (laughs) with a bunch of my high school buddies. I was working at a movie theater, and we all went and saw Killer Clowns. We're like, what the hell is this movie? I don't know. It's apparently about some clowns that kill people and come from outer space. We need to see this. Yeah. (laughs) Like they wrap them in the cotton candy cocoons and yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. So talk a little bit about your background. and Sure. Um, where do we begin? I was always interested in films. My father's a television director. He's retired now. So growing up, I was, I was always interested in, in what he was doing. Did you grow up in LA? In New York. Okay. But it never seemed to, for some reason, I never really had made the connection between what he was doing and movies or because he was mm-hmm. doing it in TV and he, he was doing, uh, when I was a kid, he was doing soap operas and he was, he would uh, direct those live and kind of cut them live in a multi-camera environment. It's like conducting an orchestra in a way, and it's kind of crazy. When you, I've tried to do that. I took a class in film school about that. I thought, oh my god, it's so stressful to 
to call a show live. But watching him, I watched him prepare, and and we would talk about how he used the camera and what his shots were in his editing, his editing plan because he never edited. It. He cut cut it live and came home, and so he always had to have the cameras in the right place and all that. So I kind of grew up knowing that a little bit. Then we moved to New Jersey when I was about seven years old. Early on, I went to a Edison's museum, Edison's factory, which has turned into a museum. And we saw in the Black Mariah, which was his soundstage that rotated to accommodate the sun, the roof opened. We saw the Great Train Robbery, which I remember. Was you saw eight, that in there? Yeah, they projected it. They turned it into a theater. Oh, and, wow, that's really cool. And uh, and our docent, who gave us the tour, had been one of the research guys when Edison was there. He was an old guy who had worked there, and then he'd be, now he's giving tours. And I don't know, I was so blown away by that I just wanted to go and make movies so it probably took me a year or two of shoveling snow and cutting lawns before I had enough money to buy some 8mm film my dad had a wind up Kodak Brownie uh, I guess it was double 8 because you ran the film through the camera it was 25 foot roll and you get to the other end you took it out flipped it over ran it back the other way yeah I had one lab. of those too they split the film spliced it together and, and my first camera was a, was a wind up I don't remember what kind of camera it was, but I, it was um, I couldn't find the one that my dad had he might be at his house but I couldn't find it so I went on eBay and I found one that was the same and I bought it just to oh, have cool. it as a memento it wasn't expensive it was like 20 bucks or something yeah because nobody's uh, using i don't even know can you even get split eight film anymore i don't think so and actually one of the lenses it's a three lens turret uh one of the lenses didn't even have an element in it so well actually like, isn't it just 16 millimeter film that's been double perfed right but i don't know if where you'd process it or split it or i don't know what you'd do yeah. with it once you shot it anymore i would call pro eight millimeter <laughs> because if anyone would know they would know they would know my first movie, I made a I made a uh, eight millimeter version of the Great Train Robbery with my model trains, oh, wow. some plastic cowboys and horses. Got the neighbors to help me out, and uh, and I was kind of hooked. Then I tried an animated film with some friends, which we took so many drawings that we never oh, finished man. it. You know, I was kind of that was what I wanted to do, but it was so it was so far removed from what I thought was possible. I started getting into still photography because that was something that was much more doable. So. I was kind of very active in still photography, and all through college, um, well, starting in middle school, actually, then high school and college, and uh, then after college, I came out to California for a vacation. I flew into San Francisco, I was going to drive down the coast, get to LA, and I was going to fly home, maybe San Diego if I could make it, but whatever, I I really didn't have a plan. And uh, I got from San Francisco, I got as far as Carmel, and I, I got a job working as a production assistant on a TV show for free. I did that for three weeks, and I ran out of money. Can you say what the show was? Yeah, it was called Doris Day's Best Friends. It was a cable <laughs> show where Doris Day interviewed people about their pets. Nice. And um, <laughs> so it was a simpler time. I, yeah, but I had a great time. And actually, my job—I had two jobs on that show. My, I, my job was one to uh, to pick Doris up at home and bring her to the set every day and bring her home. Mm-hmm. So that was great. And and frequently, I would go in. After work, we'll go in and have a vodka rocks with her in her kitchen with the dogs. Man, the stories she must so have told you. Probably, I probably didn't appreciate them to the yeah. full degree, but we would talk, just talk about stuff. She was, you know, and what I thought about the process. I was so into the production, you know. That's cool. Um, and then when I was on set, because in between driving her, I was just hanging out. I would just help the grips and electric because that was interesting to me. And the production would always send me on runs early on. And then at some point, a couple days in, he grew up in the gaffer, went to production and said, you can't send him anymore. We need him. You know, they needed the extra hands. And, oh, wow. and I was I was curious and capable and I listened well and I paid attention and um, I knew nothing, but I was eager. 
And so I just became an honorary grip electric. Of course, then at the end of the day, I would drive Doris home. And um, how did you end up landing this? I mean, like, how did you? Who did you meet? Who got you into it? Total nepotism. Was, I, I got Always. the job through my father. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I got you a job, but it was free. <laughs> I was working yeah. eighteen hours a day for no money. So, but I was lucky to have it because I wouldn't have gotten the job if it wasn't for him. And I didn't care that I wasn't making any money at that point. I was just having a ball, you know. Of course, but, and at that age too. So right? I ran out of money, and I went home because. The show kind of ended, and I was I was broke, <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'll go home. So I went back uh, to Maine, where I was living. A couple weeks later, the production manager called me and said, you know, we're, we'd like you to come back out. We're doing another show. We'd like to have you work with us. I said, I would love to, but I'm broke. I just can't afford it. And she said, well, if you can get out here, we'll pay you $100 a day and put you in a hotel. Perfect quit my job, called my girlfriend, told my parents <laughs> I was leaving, and I came out to California. Nice. It was a six-week gig, so I figured I'd come out for six weeks and I'd go home until so- we'll see what happened. I had no plan. About a couple weeks into it, I don't know, two weeks into it, I went to the production manager, and uh, I said, if I found an apartment or someplace to rent, would you give me what you're paying the hotel towards my rent? And she said, sure, you know, fine. So I went and I found a little guest house to rent, and then I basically called everybody and told them I wasn't coming home. I was staying. And that's how I worked on Killer Clowns from Outer Space because they shot that up in Watsonville and Santa Cruz area. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was living up there, so I got to I got to work on that up there. So would it be fair to say that Doris Day got you the gig on Killer Clowns from Outer Space because I really want to say that? That would be a stretch, but let's go for it. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Good. I think that's awesome. But um, I don't think she even knew the movie was going on. She wasn't involved. But um, but you know what? She was such a nice lady. And, and for years, I, mean, I used to exchange Christmas cards with her for years after that. And then eventually kind of stopped because, I don't know, whatever. It just seemed time to stop. And, and I think about her a lot. I just saw her picture in one of the tabloids and some ridiculous story. So I thought, I should really write to her and see if she even remembers me. That was... I didn't realize she was still 20, alive. 28 years ago, so that was oh, a while wow. ago. So, yeah, so, time flies. My three-week vacation took me 28 years. I'm still on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Loving it. Obviously, another one of my big bullet points, and I, I warned you about this earlier, is we got to talk, I hope I say his name right, Don Coscarelli. Yep. Like, I mean, I, I have a hard time saying his name. I don't have a hard time saying that I've, I believe I've seen all of his films, and he is a, a true auteur, I think, in every sense. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting that you you shot two Phantasm movies for him. You shot three and four. And you also, you did some work on Bubba Hotep as well. I have to ask you, did you ever see Kenny and Company? I did not. Or Jim's the World Jim the World's Greatest? I didn't see that. Those are his first two films. I haven't seen I don't that. know which order he shot him. I haven't seen any, I don't think I've seen anything pre-Phantasm 1. Oh, okay. Because after Phantasm, he did Survival... Sur- oh, I know. Uh, Survival, survival Quest. Quest. Survival Quest? Okay. okay, I have an admission. I have not seen Survival oh, Quest. Oh, okay. And he also did Beastmaster. I have seen... Which is the movie Conan aspired to be. I uh, I, I have uh, many uh, childhood memory with Beastmaster and okay. Tanya Roberts therein. I just think that... That's right, I forgot she was in there. First of all, I think that not enough filmmakers have a myth that they tell. And he tells a myth that is, there is another world... It's extremely malevolent, but it's also ridiculous. Right. Nothing embodies that better than Bubba Hotep and, and John dies at the end. But I actually think if you go back and look back at the first Phantasm even, there's something a little ridiculous about the world of the tall man. And yet at the same time, it's extremely malevolent and scary. And I don't think anyone's ever made a horror film quite like him before. All of his movies are actually scary and funny. 
Absolutely. And I'm going to tell you a story, which I don't know if it's public knowledge, and I don't know if he would want anyone to know, but since he's not here, I'll tell the story, which mm-hmm. is he was making one of his earlier films. I don't remember. What, I wasn't around, so I don't know. It was either Kenny and Company or Jim the World's Greatest. And he needed a location. I think his parents knew a guy who had an apartment, and he was willing to let them use it. So they were shooting in this apartment. And the apartment was the apartment of Angus Scrimm, who became the tall man. Oh. Don was so intimidated by this <laughs> guy. Not very tall, by the way. I, I saw, not, I saw not, him. Well, and, and probably less now, I'm, yeah. I'm sure. As I, I was at a screening of, of John Dies at the End, and he was there, and I was well, like... You know, in Phantasm, he wears shoes with, like, Herbert yeah. Munster kind of platforms. But Don, you know, when he made his first film, he was, I don't know, 18, 19? I mean, 12, I think he might have been maybe? 20 when he made Phantasm. Right, so. so, and he made two films before that, so maybe he was 17. So he was, a, like, a high school kid. Yeah. He was intimidated, and he thought this guy was kind of scary, he had a scary look, and that inspired him, from what he told me, to write the phantasm. I think he so, actually told that story at the oh. John Dies at the End thing, so I don't think he'll be afraid of oh, okay. I don't think he'll be upset with you. I mean, to me, this is something that is a dead horse that, that I will beat. I'm a huge horror fan. I'm a huge horror nerd. I love horror movies. And I think that some people really embrace it and really love it, and some people really shy away from it. I will omit the guy's name, but there's a DP of a major horror franchise who I had the pleasure to work with at one point, and he sort of disparaged the horror movies that he'd done. Like, yeah, they're all crap, blah, 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 blah. I might not have been on the set had it not been for the movies this guy had shot. Mm. You've hit a lot of different genres. When you're working with Don, I'm always afraid I'm going to say his name wrong, Don Coscarelli. When you're working with somebody like him, he's just kind of a unique, he's he's a very unique voice. Right. But what's your feeling about them in general? I think horror films are a lot of fun. And you're right, he's he does horror and comedy. He does a mix, which is also fun. I can't say that I'm a, I'm a fan of some of the kind of torture porn. Yeah. Because those things just gross me out and scare me in a way that they're getting so real that I don't really want to think about people in that way. So, And that's almost what horror has become in a way. But when you think about early horror, like Halloween or um, The the Thing, or I used to love Creature Feature, which was on Sunday in New York. It was Channel 5, I think it was, maybe 11, but whatever it was. I used to love those kind of, those old kind of horror movies. They're, when you, they're kind of now they're not they're kind of campy and not really scary but then they were kind of scary and creepy I just think it depends on I guess it's just an individual film you know genres talking about genres is a strange thing because genre kind of implies rules and I, and I think that films so many films today bounce around I mean when we did Phantasm 3 it was pretty close on the heels I think to Lethal Weapon 3 which was really a comedy action picture which was mm-hmm. kind of a new genre in a way and, and when I read Phantasm Three script, I thought, well, there's a comedy horror. It was clearly funny, and it was clearly a horror film. Yeah. And and I think that's some of what the fans maybe didn't love about it. Some of the fans wanted it to be one thing or another, and I think uh, Phantasm Four, we kind of went more horror, less comedy. Yeah. And I think that was for the fans. If I, I mean, it's not well, really for me to say, but I don't know what inspired Don to write that story that way, but I think that's it. I think people want that. I like films that, that challenge me in mm-hmm. a way, so and interest me. If it's a story that I would like to see or hear, then I'm interested in it, and, and I don't really care if it's a, a genre or not. I haven't done horror recently, but I have been talking with two different producers about two potentially upcoming horror films. Cool. We'll see what happens. I mean, it depends on a lot of things. They have to get the rest of the money. We have to schedule it. It has to work out. But let me ask you how you approach, uh, from a from a cinematography standpoint, how do you approach 
doing a genre film, I mean, honestly, a film in any genre, science fiction, horror, whatever, where there's kind of accepted tropes, there are audience expectations. If you were hired to make a horror film, you know, and the Phantasm movies are definitely that, do you just blank slate it and say, like, I know I'm trying to get this kind of a tone? How would working with somebody like Don Coscarelli on, on a horror movie be different from working with him on a comedy, for instance? I would say with somebody else, I don't know if this is if this because it's horror only. I think I think what I'm about to say regarding horror would apply to Don with any genre because I think he's he's very visually kind of he has very distinct visual style that he likes. Yeah. Horror it gives you license to do things. First of all within the genre like you you know when you when you all of a sudden you short side somebody so they're kind of they have no no look room and there's room behind them and they start backing up you know something's going to come up behind them. It just that's what happens of in course. horror movies. It's like you leave room behind the character it's going to be filled with something yeah. to scare them, right? Do you ever or try you, and work against those expectations though or you, yeah, you have to first. I think with any movie, you have to start by establishing the rules. Even if it's a accepted genre, you kind of start off by saying, "Okay, this is the world that we're playing in," and then you can twist it on its end. Once you kind of establish it for the audience, you can try. Mm-hmm. But like with Don, like one thing that I I also like very much is I always think of the the conflict of light and dark and the contrast between white and black. And with horror, it's it's natural. It's just a given. If you're doing a horror film. You can let things play in the shadows. You want to kind of feel that there might be something there. Mm-hmm. When we did Phantasm Four. I had an idea, which was that instead of separating the tall man with light from the background so that he always kind of had tonal separation and stood out, I wanted his shadow side to blend into the background so that the black of the background would kind of blend into the black of him so he was part of the shadows, which kind of in my mind implied that anywhere there was darkness... There was potential for evil. Oh, that's cool. Um, it wasn't 100 percent successful because, you know, all of a sudden you're doing a shot and he comes out a little bit further, or we're we're, we're rushing the clock and we have to get the shot. And well, I could. It's going to take me 20 minutes to move that light in order to put that in darkness. Yeah. Ah, I got to get the shot. I have to make the day. So, it wasn't 100 percent successful. I wasn't able to be dogmatic about it, but it was the idea, and so I tried to introduce it as much as I could. And I think the combination of working with Don. And also doing a horror film allowed me that mm-hmm. license. When I was finishing up school, I applied for a job. Well, there used to be, I don't know if it's still out, Dramalog used to come out every Thursday. It was night. back, it's now backstage. Backstage West, okay, or well, backstage. It's, it's now it's just backstage, okay. and it's, I, came, know, I know more than I should know about okay, it. It came out Thursdays, and they always, they posted production jobs. And there was a production job, and so I went and brought my reel. My reel at the time consisted of clips from one of my student films. It was like five minutes, way too long. I sent a resume in. I guess, and I got a call to bring my reel. I don't know why they thought it, I'd be good, but whatever. It, and so I got there. I drove. I remember drove Laurel Canyon over into the valley, and I brought my reel. And I left it, and I said thank you, and I left. I started driving back home. I think it was Laurel. Maybe it was Coldwater. One of them has a shopping center about halfway, and where? And I, my pager went off, and I stopped. And I got to the payphone, and I checked, and they asked me if I'd come back for an interview. But I'd never applied for a job shooting something before. And here I am, my first reel, getting it. I'm like, this is awesome. So I go back. And as I'm going in, I ask the girl at the receptionist, I said, by the way, why did you call me? And just, I was curious. And she said, I don't know. You just, I looked at your resume, and I knew they were picking somebody. And I just thought I'd call you. So it was complete serendipity. So I went into the meeting, and it was meeting. I met with Roberto Casada, who uh, was the production manager. He asked me what I had shot, and... I really didn't have any credits. I had some student credits. I had some uncredited second unit stuff. And 
on his windowsill behind him. There Killer must, Clowns. Killer Clowns was one of them, yes, yes from outer space. But I was a little intimidated because on the windowsill behind his desk, there had to be 300 VHS cassettes. And on the table were five, and mine was one of them. And he, I just dropped it off. So he must have watched those. Anyway, he said, um, you know, truthfully, he said, I like your work better than any of the reels, but I can't hire you because you have no credits. And I said, well, why did you call me in to tell me that? Because I was halfway home. And he said, well, we don't have any money for a second unit, but but I need one, and would you shoot it? And I said, well, I'm not working for nothing. That's insane. So we agreed that I would get, uh, I think it was $42.50 a day. <laughs> <laughs> to shoot some second unit stuff. But I told him there were some other things that I was reaching out for and, and if something else came along, I would have to leave. I couldn't stick around for um, for that kind of money. And this was uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 4 with Clint Howard and Maude Adams. I was so thrilled to meet Maude Adams' octopus. You know, I know. Amazing. So, and Clint Howard was great too. Anyway, I got the job and uh, I went and I shot some stuff and it was going great. But then it started getting weird. Like I wasn't getting a lot of cooperation. They didn't, they, you know, the first day they handed me a, a 2C with some film and a shot list. I didn't have a camera system. I didn't know how to load a 2C. It's like, okay. So luckily I had my camera, professional camera assistance handbook. I read it and I went into the bag and I loaded the camera. I was like, okay. Shot my inserts of things and they all worked out. So I loaded it right. <laughs> <laughs> and went to dailies. It was great. Projected dailies, the old, good old days. And everybody loved it. Oh, that's a great shot. It was just a sign. It was a street sign, but it was, they liked the low angle or whatever. They just loved it. I was, this was great. But that, then, that you were putting any thought into it at all. Right. And But then, you know, a couple nights into it, I needed to shoot something, but they were so busy. I needed to do my inserts when the company was at lunch. Electricians weren't going to leave the generator on for me, and they weren't going to give me any lights. So I was like, this is ridiculous. Well, so actually the day before that, Roberto had hired me. He left the show. He quit for whatever reason. He had quit. I had some other things going on. They were not really, they didn't really want me there. So I told them I was going to leave. I was going to go pursue the other things. I wasn't interested. So I left. Two years later, I got a call about Phantasm Three. Mm-hmm. Roberto wanted me to meet Don. He asked if I remembered him, which I did. He didn't really remember me. He knew, he thought my name was Greg. He had a watch that had an address book in it. He put a new battery in it, handed it to a PA and said, I'm looking for a guy named Greg. He lives in Santa Monica. Find him. He's in this watch somewhere. First of all, I didn't live in Santa Monica when he met me. I had moved to Altadena and then then back to Santa Monica, luckily. So I was in Santa Monica then. My name isn't Greg, but he found me anyway. I was shooting a little movie, and Roberto came by the set to visit me and happened to see me helping the grips get the dolly off the truck. And he loved the idea that I was you know, not afraid to touch the equipment. Introduced me to Don, and that's how I ended up getting Phantasm Three. And Roberto and I have stayed friends for years. I mean, his daughter actually lives like two blocks from me now, so I see him periodically oh, wow. still. He's moved to the East Coast, but but when he's out here, I see him because he's so close. But that was huge for me. Phantasm Three is really my first film. I had done smaller films before that, but but they haven't been released, you know. Yeah. And, and and it was real. But it was Roberto for whatever reason liked what I did and remembered me enough, and and I think that was kind of huge. When you're working with somebody like Don, this is a guy who, there's a way he does it. This guy, oh, he's, yeah. he's one of those filmmakers where you can look at a shot and know it's his film. Right. Well, here's the thing about Don. Well, first of all, when, when I first met with him, uh, I didn't have any furniture. He came to my house. To, he wanted to see my reel. He was coming to my apartment. I had no furniture. Literally, I had a piece of carpet on the floor, TV up on some milk crates, and I went and bought some bagels, but we like sat on the floor and watched the video. I couldn't, mm-hmm. whatever. But he he liked it enough. So he and he what he told me is he wanted to do 
all the flying spheres in camera. He didn't. He wasn't pleased with the the uh, kind of the way they were done in Phantasm Two because it was a lot of most of them were done in post. I had seen Phantasm One, but I hadn't seen Two, so he gave me a copy and I watched it and I agreed. It just it, they didn't look like they were part of the set. They weren't mm-hmm. part of the world. It looked like you cut to the ball. It's flying out there. Yeah, yeah. So so we spent a lot of time trying to devise ways to make them to shoot them in camera, and that was challenging and fun and how had he done it in the first one uh well i don't know i guess probably some of the same way we did the second one but he had new way he wanted to fly them more we ended up you know flying them out on a fishing string we ended up mounting them to plexiglass and shooting through the plexiglass we we had all kinds of gags carrie Pryor, who was kind of the sphere effects master he, he took some of our initial ideas and made them better darren okada who had shot phantasm 2 came in and shot some of the spheres in phantasm 3 for second unit did a great job with that I had spent a couple, I don't know, maybe a week at Claremont trying to build rigs and trying to figure out what can we do to make this work? And then they kind of gave them the ideas that mm-hmm. we had and talked to them and then they kind of refined them a little bit. But it's interesting, on the very when, when I was hired, Roberto told me, he said, you know, Don really likes to operate. So don't be offended if he wants to operate the movie. I said, look, it's my, I'm just happy to be here. If he wants to operate, that's fine. I'll light it. So on the first day, we're shooting something, and about lunch, he said to me, he said, you know, you're a better operator than I am. You can operate the movie. I said, okay, great. But before the end of the first day, or maybe it was the second day, I'm lining up a shot, and he said, center up. And I said, excuse me? He said, center up on whoever, it was Reggie or somebody. I said, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to center up. He said, if you were hunting, you'd shoot off his ear. I said, well, it's a good thing I'm photographing and not hunting then, because I'm not <laughs> going to put him in the center of the frame. We had this big thing, and, and I thought, I'm going to be sent home. But, you know, uh-huh. I was like, I, don't want to, I didn't want to shoot an ugly movie. I wanted to at least compose nice shots. And he said, what are you thinking? And I started telling him about how I wanted to use the space. And he said, oh, okay, we'll try it your way. So he has a very distinct style, but he's also incredibly generous because he could have said, who are you? Get off my set. Yeah, yeah. You know? He just was very generous, and we became very good friends. You know, I was thrilled when he asked me to shoot Phantasm Four. Yeah, and truthfully, you know, he asked me to do Bubba Hotep too, but it was a scheduling conflict. I couldn't, so I only did, I did some pickups, which he kind of guilted me into. But, um, <laughs> but I was thrilled to be a part of it. I wish I had, could have done the whole movie. I just, he couldn't wait for me, and I, I couldn't get. I just once I make a commitment, I'm not. I can't bail on it. No, I, I hear to, you. You have to do what you have to do. Although so. Baba Hotep is, I know. is a classic. When I read the script, I was like, Oh my god! You know, Elvis battles and JFK battle a mummy. You know, it's Bruce Campbell. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, it's Elvis and Ozzy Davis. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, unbelievable. No, it's just a great cast. There's but, also um, something about his work too that I think it, it's not just about like the composition. There's something about the way his films are paced. They have. Oh yeah. A, it's like they just have a really specific pacing to them that's very unique. <laughs> him yeah he's very conscious of of where scenes will fall in in real breakdown like you have to have a certain number of kind of scares per reel and you know and you're dealing with you know five reel film for mm-hmm. uh, it's probably a little different now if he's finishing digitally but he really has an idea it's like well this when this is cut this is going to fall in around you know minute 12 and there better be something there and we can probably have a little bit of a lull but around 16 we have to you know he really he has that down. He and knows what he wants. I think of him as a very specific pacing person. Even just the way that dialogue scene is paced is so unique in his films. Does he impose that on you in any way, or is it just like that's how he blocks the actors and that's how he does it in your... I don't remember him imposing that pretty much, but I remember him being very collaborative and really, you know, I'm thinking, for example, in Phantasm Four, you know, we were out in uh, Lake Bed, Dry Lake Bed, and there the, the, the hanging tree where Mike hangs himself. And 
It was freezing cold and windy and stuff. And I don't remember feeling rushed or anything. Meanwhile, they're trying to set up all these space gates because it's supposed to be like this whole field of space gates that mm-hmm. you can go to any planet or whatever while we're shooting this and then we're going to go over there. And, and he, I think Don understands that filmmaking takes time. And he wants it to be right. He'd rather do it right yeah. than do it fast. He wants it to get it done in time. You know, it's a finite amount of money too. But but he's willing to take the time it needs to get it right. And I think that's commendable. Then when the set is his, you know, he works it out with the actors what he's doing. But he gives us all the time to do what we need to do. So I think he was pretty great with it. The the the, the two secrets I have I will share with you about the spheres is, I was worried when we were flying around a fishing string that we would see the string. But the secret is you don't see fishing string if you don't light it. And so here's secret number one about the spheres. You can't light a chrome sphere. If you light a chrome sphere, all you see is a point of light. Yeah. You light the world around the sphere, and you see the world reflected in the sphere. So there's no light hitting the fishing string, because the sphere itself is in darkness, essentially. Or, that makes sense. Or near darkness. Yeah. It makes sense now, but at the time, going into it, I was like, how are we going to deal with this? And, <laughs> and then it just happened, and I then I realized, ah, oh, this is what's happening. The other thing that's really good to know about the spheres is... When the blades come out, nobody's looking at the ball. Everyone's looking at the blades to see when they impact. And so if you happen to look at the ball and some of those things, you might see some things that you would, we would rather you not see. I'm gonna you go might see and, a crew person or for the lens or something because, <laughs> because there, are, there are things that appear on the ball. If you look closely, you can see things that we're trying to hide. But because you're looking at the, the blades, you don't notice them. So we got away with a lot of stuff. Oh, that's, that's yeah. interesting. You know, psychology of you know you want to see that <laughs> that hit. well yeah of course yeah when the blades come out you're yeah, yeah got it. I've done plenty of other films that were not horror films where I also like to play with darkness how dark is do you like trying to find some kind of a thematic connection between whatever the story is and whatever is the light thing and whatever is the dark thing and use use the light in that way I try I mean I don't know that it's a conscious I try to do that but I definitely I do that mm-hmm. I think about what's the story and how does light tell the story how does the arrangement of space in the screen tell the story. So mm-hmm. how am I arranging things as flat space or deep space? Am I am I coming off things and revealing something deeper all of a sudden with a, in a camera move? Those kind of questions always come to bear. I don't sit down and say, oh, I have to find a way to do these things. Mm-hmm. I think that's the grammar of that I use in my in my work. And but, so, but that's interesting because rolled into it. Because well, I mean, like you'll often hear about like The Godfather, you know, whatever Star Wars and the use of colors or the use of this or that and how uh, a certain part of the story was denoted that way. Do you sit down when you're preparing? Do you come up with that code, or do you and the director come up with that code? I, I, I answer, I'll give you two answers, or two ways of answering. Let's put it that way. In Phantasm Three, I had an idea. The idea was that, and I don't know when the last time you saw it was, but maybe you remember. In the theater. <laughs> oh, oh, wow, okay, so it was a while ago. There's a number of scenes early in the movie where I used... Congo Blue, which I think is like Lee 189 or some, it's, it's, it almost looks like uh, ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. It's so purple. It's so dark. And it's a color that doesn't really exist too many places except maybe a black light or something. And so I saw it and I thought, well, that's interesting because it's not a natural color. It wouldn't exist anywhere. I'm going to use that. Because mm-hmm. um, I was like flipping through the swatch book. And I thought, wherever the tall man is in the beginning of the movie, early on, I'm going to have that color somewhere. So you have a shot of him and maybe there's just a little kiss of that color in the background or maybe he's a little bit of a rim on his hair or whatever it was just present in the frame but my idea was that I wanted there to be a connection between his presence and this color so that later in the movie when they're going through the mausoleum and they're going through different places that uh, where he wasn't and they're moving slowly 
as I come around a corner, I could introduce the, that little color like on a pillar in the mausoleum. Mm-hmm. So they come around, you're like, you wouldn't think about it because nobody was thinking about it, but it would just add to the idea that he could be close because this color that is always there when he's there, Yeah, here's the color and he's not there. So he's coming. And, and it was something I tried. Whether it worked, I have no idea. The other example, because since you asked this, I did a movie called Sea of Dreams, which was a magical realism romantic film. It's really about a love triangle, about a girl, the ocean, and a guy. And the ocean is in love with her also. And everyone who loves the girl ends up dying tragically in an ocean-related incident. <laughs> we really wanted to make the ocean feel a character. So we really wanted it like, to be a spectacular color, blue. And so we, we also framed her whenever possible. It wasn't always possible. If there was a possibility of positioning the actors so that when on her angle, the ocean was behind her, but not the other guy... We always positioned them that way. It was a conscious effort. So, oh, when they're coming into this space, she needs to be on the left because when we cut to her close-up, I want the ocean in the frame with her. When she's running here, instead of shooting this way, if we shoot this at 9 o'clock in the morning, I can get the ocean in the background. If I do it at 3 in the afternoon, I can't. So let's schedule this for the beginning of the day. So we really tried to introduce, keep her there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that decision to tie her into the ocean and to make the ocean really kind of come forward drove so many, we did some... It drove our night work to uh, what our what moon looked like. We made a very blue moonlight, which I don't normally think of as the moon as being very blue. We had some very large night exteriors that there was no way to light them, so we shot day for night. Mm-hmm. So I had to figure out, well, what's that day for night going to look like? Okay, where does day for night fail? In every example that I've ever seen where it fails, it's because the day for night looks totally different from night for night. And when you intercut them or have one scene and then another... It just becomes very obvious that that was day for night. So I thought, let's find the way we want to do day for night. And then when we saw that blue that we loved, we said, okay, we're going to do that. Then how do, how do I create that blue in the night for night so that the stuff I'm lighting also has a feeling of that? And that color, because we respond so subconsciously and quickly to color. Mm-hmm. It was like, ah, now there's a commonality between the night for night and the day for night. And it ties in in some of the scenes in the day when we see the ocean. There's the idea. Hopefully it's functioning at a subconscious level. Hopefully nobody's watching the movie and going, "Yeah, that's the you know that's the, the ocean light or whatever." I'm hoping that's not the mm-hmm. case. But that also played out in mentioned happy accidents before. One night, we were shooting on this lighthouse, that was, or we were going to shoot there, but it, the lighthouse is a couple hundred feet above the water, and it was lunch break, so midnight. So we started walking to the catering, and as I'm walking, there's some work lights that the caterer has set up and just kind of punching up into the sky. And I saw these trees silhouetted in front of the mist that was lit by these lights. And I thought, wow, that's really beautiful. And it really answers, solves a problem for me because I was really struggling with how am I going to light beyond the lighthouse because I was on a cliff. I had no, I couldn't put any lights down there. They were 200 feet down to the ocean. Yeah. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I really wanted to feel the ocean and I wanted to extend the space beyond, I didn't want it just to fall into blackness. Yeah. So... But I've seen that going to the going to catering. I went, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. So I took some big HMIs, daylight balanced lights, hid them out of the way, and just blasted them out into the fog. But all of a sudden, when you saw that lighthouse, beyond the lighthouse, you see this this feeling of blue that kind of disappears off into the mist. And the idea was just that, okay, it's that color that we were using from the ocean. Yeah, I got totally got the idea from the caterer. You know, <laughs> totally stole that, but applied it in a way that related to the kind of conceptual idea. Because you have to marry concept with practice or else neither one of them are 
have any use or value. So, so I, I, maybe I'm circling back to the same question I just asked. So when you're looking at a script, how do you form kind of the kernel of that concept? You know, it seems to me like there's like one or two rules. You can't have like 40 rules or oh, you right. get lost in no, it. No, you, you have to, <laughs> yeah, you have to be focused and limited. If you have too many rules, it's, it's a mess. It's like a salad of just mm-hmm. your, sometimes it comes from the script. Very often I get it when I'm scouting locations. Mm-hmm. You know, when I read that script in particular, you're reading about the ocean and all this. I kept thinking, oh, it should be anamorphic. It should be a 240. Anamor- this is going to be great. Then I went to scout the locations with the director. And we scouted, oh, I don't know, four months before we started shooting, just the two of us. He had, he had already done a lot of scouting already. And then he wanted me to go down. It was in Mexico, kind of on the edge of the jungle. He's like, come down and let's look at what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Make sure this is going to work for you. Because if so, we're going to pull the trigger and make this happen. So I went down and we spent a week just the two of us, I think the production designer was there also for part of the time, mm-hmm. looking at things. And as soon as I looked at, walked that beach, I thought, this is not going to work in an anamorphic frame for me because it was it was a hillside that met the ocean. And immediately I started thinking, oh, I want to shoot this 166 or maybe 133. But you can't release a movie 133 or 166 yeah, in the yeah. U.S. So it, it became a 185. I was like, okay, I, I just need, I need a little more height. So I'm going to, we went 185. Conceptually, I wouldn't have gotten there without seeing the location. Yeah, but as soon as I saw it, it just clicked. That's what it had to be. The other ideas, you know, you have a bunch of ideas, and uh, and you see what works. I mean, I talk with the director about. It. I say, I have an idea. I want to. I'm thinking about. What do you think about this? Mm-hmm. Does it work? You know, in that particular film, early on reading the script, I was struck that the climax of the movie happened in the middle of the day, and it's pretty scary what's going on. And I asked him. I said, Wouldn't it be more scary, or couldn't we heighten the the tension if we shot this at night, made it a night scene. And he said, oh, you know what? I think you're right. That, that could be great. Let's look at that. But two or three days later, he called me and said, you know, it doesn't work. We can't do it at night because if we make that night, there's a half a day we can't account for. Like, how do we get to night? In my uh, non-writer simplicity, I thought, well, just cut. <laughs> you know, cut from here yeah. to there and that's what it is. But he wasn't content with that. He really wanted it to have a flow. We, we stopped and I hung up and I said, okay, and then I had an idea, and I called him. This was probably a mistake. I do this a lot. But I called him, and I said, uh, I have an idea. Since the, the climax is basically the, um, the town starts flooding, the ocean starts rising through the earth, it starts coming up through the water, it's going to tr- flood the town because the ocean is jealous. Mm-hmm. The girl's about to get married. Ocean's pissed. This is what's going to happen. Yeah. And I said, well, everybody knows that the tides are connected to the moon. So what if the moon eclipses the sun? turns the day black in the middle of the day like a Connecticut Yankee from King Arthur's Court <laughs> and we have a climax in blackness that but it's still daytime it's not night it's day and it happens at that time and he said oh I like that idea how mm-hmm. do you do that so I have no idea how to do it <laughs> that's the problem <laughs> okay but he said no that's what we're gonna do so then I thought oh god now I got now I dug a hole for myself it ended up we didn't do the eclipse thing we ended up shooting some clouds time-lapse clouds and we just had clouds kind of churning to make it go dark we did a in-camera effect i didn't want it to feel like something we cut into so yeah. we created a shot a dolly shot around uh sonia raga who's plays the wise woman of the town who kind of is in touch with nature and knows what's going on she's got sort of maybe supernatural powers but she's not a not conjuring anything but she just knows what, what she feels nature yeah so we do a dolly around her the grips fly in a 20 by solid overhead, which kind of darkens it. We do a six stop iris pull and I have a 12 K HMI come up and edge her out. And all of a sudden it just goes black with this edge light on her. And there's a couple of cuts, but it, 
we shot it in camera and it worked. It kind of makes you say, oh, something's changed, you know, it's different. Then we cut in and everything for the next few minutes is, is blackness. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't look like night. It doesn't look like the nights we've established that had the blue. Yeah. It's, it's called a black day. It's, it's very monochromatic. There's color. If somebody's wearing something of color and they're in frame, they're in color. But there's no color gels in any of the lights. We shot with white light and just made it very kind of contrasty and very dark blacks. And, and then at some point the girl goes to the beach. It's going to decide that the only way to save the town is to go to the ocean because the ocean wants her. Yeah. So she goes to the beach and as she steps into the water, we did the reverse. All of a sudden the sky starts brightening. You can see oh, wow. it's daytime and now it's it's a sunny afternoon. And that was hard because... It's one thing in a town where you don't see the sky, but all of a sudden now at the beach to make it go from being almost pitch black to yeah to light that was that made me nervous, but it worked. And she goes into the water, and other stuff happens, and I'm not going to tell you the end. But it's a well, that's a really interesting uh, kind of an expressionistic way to kind of tell that moment, and that's a great example of where kind of cinematography tells the story. Right, and it came from there's a you know magical realism. You have a lot of leeway also, like in horror. Yeah. In horror, anything can happen. Magical realism, as long as you follow the rules you establish, you can get away with anything, in a way. And I think any movie is like that. I think you have to establish those rules kind of early on mm-hmm. and follow them. And then if you want to break them, break them for an effect. I mean, it's, I kind of have a firm believer that um, the rules in particular, just the general rules of cutting, like screen direction rules and things like that, those are really important when the film's not working. <laughs> you know, yeah. when the film's working, nobody cares. But if all of a sudden the audience isn't in the movie, they better be going the right direction and looking in the right place because, you know, otherwise the audience just gets taken Some people out. can get away with that. I mean, um, uh, this project I'm working on right now uh, with a very major DP and a very major director, like I'm watching it and they clearly cross the line several times in the movie. And it's like, doesn't pull you out of it. You don't even notice it. You don't think about it. Because everything else is working. Yeah. Right. And I've worked with DPs, Walt Lloyd being one of them, who specifically said at, in one scene, like, I kind of want to cross the line right here. Right. And, you know, when you've got somebody like Walt, he knows he can get away with it. Like, right. he knows it's going to work. Right. Well, he's doing it for an effect. He's doing it to get the audience into a different... Yeah. To kind of jar them a little bit or something. And you can... Yeah. Absolutely. But like you said, I think the key is not to try to try to do too many things. It's mm-hmm. just to try to decide what that world looks like and, and then try to do it in a simple way, in a way that doesn't distract from the story. Ultimately, ultimately I think audiences go to movies because they... They want to meet characters that they can care about and have them go on their journey, whatever that journey is. And if you take away from that, if you distract them from that, then then you're not doing a service to the audience or to the movie. So talk a little bit about some of your documentary work too because uh, and I remember when I met you, you you were telling me about this the boulder yeah the boulder I'm thrilled about the boulder it was one of the most fun jobs I've had probably ever which is strange it surprised me because I enjoy creating worlds so much and cinematography for me is so much about looking at for example when I talk about the the day for night stuff in the other movie looking at going to a beach at 10 o'clock in the morning and looking at it and saying we can make this look like night and it does because photographically we made it look like night and yeah. making it it's malleable it's like clay in a sculptor's hand making it what you want it to make the boulder dock was not like that the boulder dock was an event I should tell you it's it's a, it's a 340 ton boulder 
It's currently on display at LACMA. It's going to live forever for the next 400 million years. It'll be at LACMA. I was there today. I didn't see um, it. Oh, damn it. Oh, it's, on, it's right behind Resnick Pavilion. I went to the Kubrick thing. Oh, that's awesome. It's so bad. I love that, yeah. yeah. But it's behind, it's behind Resnick Pavilion. If you go to Urban Lights and uh-huh. you walk through that and kind of past the the uh, cafe there and stuff to the, to the north yard, and it's just to the left. You can't miss it. But... It's about the size of a two-story house. I'm going to drag Ilya to go to the Kubrick exhibit, and when I do, oh, yeah. we'll go check out your boulder. One of my my favorite things about the Kubrick exhibit is I brought my daughter, and she read every document. She was mesmerized by it. And How old's your daughter? Twelve. Oh wow! And she had to. She was doing a report at school on ha, Stanley Kubrick. Has she seen a lot of his films? She hasn't. But when we went, we left the exhibit, went home, and watched Doctor Strangelove. And then I had to explain how, to her how why does that it was play funny. to a twelve-year-old? She didn't understand the humor because yeah. She's twelve, and, and yeah. it's Cold War mentality stuff. But I kind of explained to to her a little bit, and uh, she enjoyed the movie. So. Wow! She, and uh, she doesn't want to see The Shining, which I don't think is good for a twelve year old anyway. <laughs> I, I, I probably saw it when I was that old, and, and and was hooked. But yeah, but she's afraid of spiders. So uh, <laughs> are there any spiders in The Shining? No, but I'm just saying <laughs> when the walls start bleeding. Or something, I think, although. I was so thrilled with the two little the dresses of the twins. Oh, that was freaky. And, and that, that is. And then also the, the typewriter with uh, all work and no play the, makes Jack don't The play. real typewriter the from real the movie. The real typewriter. Oh, with man. The, yeah. It's like a holy object. Was, was that piece of paper the real paper? Or did somebody I create that? For, I was wondering. It's a good question, that. but they said that was the real typewriter. Yeah. Yeah, I think that exhibit thing so is so is wonderful. Anyway, so, but, so tell me oh, about so the... So anyway, the boulder. So I got a call. I was on vacation with my family. I got a call from the director, Doug Prey, who I think is one of the... Um, one of the smartest filmmakers and smartest people and funniest people I know. He's mm-hmm. just, the guy's just unbelievably talented. He told me that he was making this documentary and um, there wasn't a lot of money in it. In fact, at that time, there was no money in it. He, it wasn't funded. Yeah. But he wanted to know if I wanted to do it with him and I, he told me about it. And I said, absolutely. I, I love working with him. I've done a number of commercials with Doug and he's, he's done a number of theatrical uh, docs. And I had never had the chance to work with it before. I'm like, of course I want to work with you. So I'm in. So anyway, it's a 340-ton boulder. It was 20, I think 21 feet, 6 inches tall by 20 feet, 6 inches by 14 feet or something. So it's pretty big. It was it was um, mined at a quarry out in Riverside. Basically, when they blow the mountain, the rocks fall down and they break them up and they sell them to whoever needs rocks. This piece of the mountain came down and didn't break up, which is unusual. So the artist, Michael Heiser, who's a conceptual land art guy, saw the rock and loved it. And he had this idea for this sculpture. Back in the 60s, he sketched it out. Couldn't find the rock for it. He found the rock. Nice. Called the museum, told Michael Gubbin, the director of the museum, about it. He reached out to some of his donors, and he got donors to underwrite, I guess, the purchase of the boulder. Not knowing what they, that they'd be able to do anything with it, but let's get the rock. So they bought the rock, and then they had to rent space at the quarry to leave it there. So they would work around it until they could figure it out. Long story short, five years later or so, they had the plan. They got a truck, they, they, a special truck, a company that moves nuclear reactors and space shuttles. In fact, the same company that moved the space shuttle recently. They had a truck they kind of engineered. It was 297 feet long with, a, I think, 196 tires. Many of the wheels were individually radio-controlled. So the whole journey, which was mostly between two and four miles an hour, uh, guys were walking alongside, steering it with by remote control, wow. wireless, and we had ten nights to shoot the transport of the rock. And we traveled that route, and actually the route kept changing. So we would travel the route and scout it, and then 
there'd be some issue with a city and you can't go on this road. Okay, we have to change the route. Well, that means you have to, if you enter a city on a different road, you have to leave the previous town on another road. So you have to go back and change that. So every time there was a change, there was a, a ripple effect. Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, the boulder traveled through four counties, 22 municipalities. I forget all the, the all the details now. It's all in the film, though. And it, it took a lot of coordination. They finally did it. They, it left Riverside, and it was, I think, a 46-mile run on the freeway to, to LACMA. But they couldn't go that route. They had to go down through Long Beach. It was 105 miles to get it there. So it took 10 or 11 nights, I think 10 nights. And we shot it. We were you know, up on rooftops, and we had a number of cameras. We had cameras mounted to the rig. What kind of cameras were you using? Everything. We did some early interviews. We used Sony EX3s. We shot some with a 60, uh, Canon 60D. We had a really great guy on uh, on rollerblades with a 5D kind of skating along with the rock for a lot of it. Oh, nice. Whenever the roads were smooth enough, he would put on the rollerblades and go along. I had a GH1, a GF1 mounted on the thing. I had a HVX200 mounted, a whole bunch of these little HD stealth cameras, which are kind of like GoPros, but uh, at the time we thought the night, it, they had a little bit less noise in the blacks for, at mm-hmm. nighttime, and so we thought that would be good for the night work because um, we tested those and GoPros and a couple other of uh, the other small kind of sports action cameras that were available. And then for the for the main nights of shooting, we had two Panasonic 3700s, uh, one with a really long lens and one with just kind of a still pretty long lens. You know? Yeah. And so uh, Doug had one camera of those and I had one. And then we had another crew working in the day. When the rock was traveling at night and it was parked during the day, we had another crew interviewing bystanders about the rock during the daytime. So there was a lot going on. I mean, when you see the... So at this point, like, how involved are you and how involved is your director in, like, a moment-to-moment thing? Like, are you, do you just have a bunch of camera guys and you're like, talk to anyone who will talk to you? Or is well, the director running around and, and kind of coaching everybody? We had a very... We had a specific plan. And actually, when you see the credits, it's like, I'm listed as director of photography and then it says cinematography by... And there's a list of people because because you can't... Not everybody's... It's not a normal shoot where... Everyone's on headsets, and I'm telling them what to do. We had a briefing every day yeah, and set them out, and then they, a lot of it was up to the individuals. Now, the cameras that were on the rig, the director and I picked the spots where they go, and we set them, and those were ours. But we had a plan. Doug interviewed a lot of the people, and I didn't focus on the interviews. I focused on shooting the rock in the rig. So I would kind of I would give notes to the other cameras about proximity and, and how do you juxtapose for, like... When, you cut, when it's approaching the museum, there's the there's the mastodons or mammoths in the. You know, how can we get a shot behind those of the rock coming through, or can we get can we get in a in a restaurant, like a fast food restaurant, and shoot out the window as the rock goes by, or what kinds yeah. of shots can we get to show the interaction of the rock with the community? Because one of the themes of the film is how this boulder kind of unites a region in a way. People were flocking out to see this thing. People who wouldn't maybe necessarily share a common, you know, whatever, event. They were coming out from all over. And so... How, some, can, how can we see this film? Where, where it is isn't it? finished yet. Oh, okay. So you'll see... I was it. looking for it. Yeah, no, it, um, there, was a, there was a screening recently that I went to, and it was kind of great because it was at the theater at the museum. We saw it, the rough cut. And I think they're close to finishing, but I don't think it's quite finished yet, unless he finished in the last week and I didn't hear. But you'll hear about it, I'm sure. I'm sure it will be... it probably do festivals. It might be a... Um, might be an independent lens kind of a thing, and it'll certainly play at the museum at some point, I'm sure. Oh, nice. We had a plan. We kind of gave general instructions, some specific instructions, 
And then we went out and figured out what was happening. And there were places, again, you, you know, you have to use your instincts. You're watching it. When, one night through Long Beach, I was trying to get to a position on a bridge that I had seen during the day. And then I, I noticed some oil derricks pumping that I didn't see during the day, and but it didn't stand out so much. And then I thought, well, how do I get that shot? So all of a sudden, I was, the smartest thing I did on that movie is I had one of my best friends uh, drive me around so I wouldn't have to deal with the car. I, I, and he knows L.A. like unbelievable. I said, can you get me there? He said, <laughs> Absolutely. And we got in the car and we got over there. And I got this great shot of the, like, the oil pumps going and the, the boulder going behind and uh, the train coming this way. And it was uh, Luckily, it's moving really slowly. It's moving really slowly. <laughs> and I had a great guy who knew how to get me, could figure it yeah. out. But I didn't get the other shot that I had planned, but this shot was so much better. Yeah. And, and and we really relied on everybody to say, like, these are the, what we want. This is what's important. But if you see something better, get it. But we really were gave specific instructions because we didn't want everyone to come back with the same stuff. We didn't need 10 cameras shooting close-ups of the tires moving really slowly. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You just don't need that. So we really tried to give people specific instruction and then trust them to do what they do. Well, and this this all brings up a lot of interesting things because it sounds like in your feature work, you're figuring out ways to comment on the action or, or to tell the story through the way that you're lighting and lensing. In a documentary situation like this, you don't have the ability to control the world. And I'm not saying that as a cinematographer, you're only interested in doing things one way. But what do you think unites your style between your feature work and something like this? Or does anything need to unite your style? I, I'm not sure that there's a, something that unites a style. I hope that my work all looks different. Each, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that there's not a style. I would, I really don't want someone to look at it and say, oh, Chris shot that. You know, that would be, I don't think that would be good. If I was to say, like, what's the special thing that you bring to a shoot, whatever it is, that is different from anyone else, right. what would that be? I like to think it's truth. I really look for the truth in the subject and and an honest approach to the material and a simplicity. I strive for simplicity. Sometimes it's, it's complicated to get there, but I want it to look simple. I don't want to be so flashy that you start noticing the stuff I'm doing. I mm-hmm. really want you to think that I did nothing and it just looked that way. I was just saying the other day to somebody, one of the ironies is years ago, when I was I was much more naive, let's say, than I am now. I was putting a reel together, and I was so proud of this one shot that I put on the reel because while we were shooting the scene, the rain started to come down, and I had to work really hard to hide the rain for this shot so that because I could finish the scene. And I was really proud of it, but in the end, it had no place being on my reel because I was putting a shot on there that you couldn't see the rain because I, that was the point of it. Well, what, <laughs> what, what's the hell's my, that, what does that show? It was ridiculous. It's all about what you don't what see, What you don't man. see. So I told, I'm like, that. When, one, one day I realized, well, that is the dumbest thing ever. So I got rid of that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that that's what I try to bring to it. I also am a firm believer. I mean, I, I enjoyed doing the doc and I'd like to do more docs, but I'm a really firm believer, I think, until somebody proves me wrong, that you have more kind of more freedom to be truthful and honest in fiction than you do in nonfiction. You're kind of bound in nonfiction to whatever happens. And the truth is, is something outrageous can happen and you can show it even if it's unbelievable because it really did happen. But in fiction, you can't do that outrageous thing that no one's going to believe. Yeah. You have to get to the core and you have to be honest and you have to kind of stay in, within the bounds of what's, what's worked within that world. And I think that also allows you the freedom to kind of just explore 
in a different way. And, and you can show aspects that in a doc you can hope something happens and it doesn't so you can't really do much about it. Yeah. But in a fiction film you can make something happen that allows you to comment on something that's significant. So I, I think that's, I, I, I hope that's part of it. That's interesting. That's a really interesting way to look at it. So I, I wanted, uh, only a couple other things, really. I wanted to talk to you about, you've been teaching cinematography at USC since 1997, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Talk a little bit about that. And I'm interested to know, like, what what have you learned from your students that ends up in your own work? I steal everything from them. No, uh, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, that my students were some of the first people I know to adopt some of the new technology, for sure, because it's cheap and affordable and accessible. And there, a lot of them are very technically interested And I think that's easy. You can read the spec sheet and talk the tech gear stuff. And I'm not really interested in that stuff. But when I when I need to know specs on something, I can. I know I have a big group of people I can reach out to. Really? Those guys memorize all that stuff. So you'll go Um, to your students and say, say, "What's the resolution of this?" What is this or whatever? And they'll know it. To me, that's not really interesting. But sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. In the end of the day, I look at two cameras and I say, "That one looks better than that one. I want that one." Yeah. So what if it doesn't have as many pixels or? whatever it just looks better I want to use it so but teaching is interesting I think for one thing when I started teaching I realized that I had to really stop and analyze what it is I do and what I really think about it and what I know about it because I had to be able to communicate it and I think there's no better way to learn something than to teach it so I really I didn't learn it from my students but being put in the position to of having to or agreeing to teach it I then had to go back and re-examine like how well, what, what brought you to it? teaching I got a phone call. Really? I got recommended. Uh, there was a, they needed somebody and I was recommended and they called me and, mm-hmm. and I thought that would be fun. And I had actually taught high school years ago. It's funny. I had forgotten so much of what I had studied that, uh, and I was always a firm believer that it's important to know how to teach a material, but, but really if you know the material well, you can adapt. Yeah. Some people believe that if you know how to teach, you can teach anything. But I think, you know, it's so much better to really know your subject and you can, and if you care enough to connect with your students, you can find a way to help them. Of course. And I also think the other big key to teaching is really listening. It's kind of like being a stand-up comedian. You have to feel your audience and, and know which path you're taking and know when to make those corrections. So as you're, as I'm speaking to my students and, and I can I feel that tone of the room and know if I have to stop and go back or shift and it was really I think that has informed my work a lot because because I think as a cinematographer one of the most valuable skills you have is listening listening to the director listening to the actors listening to the script as a camera operator listening to the actors because as you're as you're kind of in that rhythm with them you get a sense of when something's going to happen even if it wasn't rehearsed all of a sudden they're, you just know they're going to move and and so when you make that movement and it coincides perfectly with the movement they're making, so you're not behind them and you're not anticipating them, but you're exactly with them, it feels completely, I hate the word organic, but I'm going to say it, it feels completely organic to the moment. Nothing wrong with organic. I know, it's just overused. That's true. But, uh, but that's what I think is important. Yeah. And I think I, I think I get that more, more from the experience of teaching than from actually from my students. From my students, what I really get is what they pick up on. Like I'll, every once in a while, someone will will comment that oh I really liked for example I was talking about the day for night before I had a student say to me you know I really loved that I showed a clip of it and say I really love that because it really taught me that photography is about what I want to present to the world it's not just about recording what's there yeah I was like well that's exactly right and I never said that 
but I showed it. Nice. And I got it from him, and he got it. And and I don't know if anybody else got it or not, but I really felt like, okay, there's one guy who gets it. That when I see that, people say, you, take a, you show somebody a photograph, and they say, oh, that's such a great picture. What camera do you use? It makes me crazy. <laughs> or, you know, or we show a movie. Oh, what was that shot on? Was that the, you know, the Alexa or the Red? I'm whatever. Like, I'm just like, who cares? You know, it's, people want to know, and I get it, but, but really, it's much more important why you make the choices yeah. than what those, I mean, you'll make the choices. But truthfully, two people could have the exact same reasons and make totally different choices. Of course. And and that's, you know, there's the saying, it's the musician, not the music, or the, you know, it's, it's, it's how you use, it's how you do, what you do. So Chris, tell me uh, and, our, and our listeners where people can find you online if they're looking for you. Okay, well, my website is... Uh, chriscomen.com which is c-h-r-i-s-c-h-o-m-y-n dot com and my I have a Twitter which is cameraman without the E so it's c-a-m-r-a-m-a-n so at cameraman no E right so Chris Komen thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us here at the Cinematography Podcast thank you for being our second uh, our second person up thank you hopefully, I'm honored hopefully you'll be the second one that goes up Thank you very much. That was Chris Komen ASC. Thank you very much, Chris, for coming out. You're welcome here anytime. Please come back, Chris, and bring us more stories of phantasm. So our war story this week, Ilya, is is from one of my good friends, a DP named Fraser Bradshaw, who hails from the Bay Area. Yeah, I I know Fraser from maybe... About the same time, probably the mid-90s, he was a student at a film school across town from where I was going to school, and I believe we met at the local camera shop once uh, talking about, like, negative cutting gloves. I remember when we reconnected, he's like, I think I have your business card. Did your school, like, rumble with his school? Do you guys? No, not at all. I think he went to the Art Institute, if I have that correct. And Those uh, guys have palette knives, man. They'll cut you. Y- you know, Frazier is a, a really kind, really generous human being, and I, I don't... I never felt threatened in that way. So there was there was no, uh, you know, West Side story. Oh. Right, so. <laughs> it's a bummer, man. Well, I met Frazier on a film uh, that uh, I don't even think was ever released in America. And it was the last movie I ever did makeup on. And he was the camera assistant on it. I think we bonded over how miserable we both were on this film. That's pretty common on really terrible shoots. I think that uh, what either happens is the crew, you know, tears each other apart or they all kind of realize yeah. we're all in this together and we better figure out the way to make it through. Yeah, it's like Stockholm Syndrome. But uh, <laughs> I, I love his war story. I think it'll bring uh, across his, uh, his very specific sense of humor. All right. Well, without further ado, Fraser Bradshaw. And now, war stories. Like most DPs, I've shot some music videos. And right before the bottom fell out of music videos, I got a job shooting a girl band from Sweden. The director called and he said, Dude, you want to go on tour with a band of teenage Swedish girls? And I said, Yeah. And he said, And their moms? And I said, yeah, how much does it pay? We're on tour with these four 13-year-old Swedish girls and their moms, and they're singing to pre-recorded music. They're playing a club in Philadelphia. 
So we go to the club and these are the days of film. So I need to take light meter readings on the stage. So I ask, can you turn on the stage light so I can get some readings? And the lighting guy's not there and nobody else knows how to use the board. So we wait for a while and he doesn't come back and we realize we've got to go to dinner so we can get back in time for the thing to start. So we go to dinner and we come back and the lighting guy's back, but they've let everybody in. There's no curtain on this stage, but I've got to get readings. So I know it's going to happen and it does. He turns on the lights and I step onto the stage and 311 year old girls go, And I walk around the stage with my meter, waving to the audience. They're becoming more and more unclear whether or not they're supposed to be screaming excited about me. And finally, they realize that I'm really not who they came to see. And so I walk around the stage for another 30 seconds, holding up my light meter, taking readings. And then I wave and I walk off and they turn out the lights. Now, short ends. Ilya, what is your short end? What is your obsession for this week? Well, it's it's a product this week, and it's something that's very clever. It's uh, from a couple of DPs who started uh, a company called Cam Tags, and it was uh, started by John Ames and Greg Kendrick. And it's something really simple that, uh, I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people even knew that they, they needed or wanted until this came along, but it's pre-printed labels for your camera. Uh, and for your cards, your memory cards, your hot cards, the cards that have data on it, and your cards that are empty. The great thing about this system is that it's not really a system. It just gives you all the tools to have a very clean, neat, well-presented camera with all the pieces labeled correctly and uh, to make sure that your media data is protected. There's never been anything else out there like that, and they did a really great job with the printing material, which allows you to... uh, Place and replace or uh, peel off and peel back on, sort of like uh, post-it notes, but much, much uh, thicker and firmer so that the stuff doesn't slip off. You can write on it with a Sharpie, and in a few seconds it's dry and, and permanent. You can also... Um, uh, with, it can also withstand moisture and rain if it gets a little bit wet. It's it's really clever stuff. It's really inexpensive. It's an expendable item really designed for uh, camera assistants, uh, pro camera people. They're the ones who will see the value in this immediately. And I think that once people start using it, it'll just become a regular expendable item that they get with their camera package. And that's tags with a Z, correct? That's cam tags, exactly. C-A-M-T-A-G-Z. And uh, you can find out more information about them on camtags.com and also hotrodcameras.com. Sweet. Ben, what is your uh, obsession this week? What's your short end? Not to log roll, but on the first episode, I mentioned that I had just gone to do a location scout for a second unit directing job that I just picked up. And I wanted to kind of plug that job. It's a show for Crackle called Chosen. Crackle is basically Sony's direct uh, web portal, not unlike Hulu or Netflix or Amazon. Uh, and they do a lot of original content, like comedians in cars getting coffee. And Chosen is a show that's a paranoid thriller, kind of in the mold of the Parallax View or the Three Days of the Condor, but with a very modern uh, look and feel. Lots of guns, lots of cars, lots of high-octane action and suspense and you know, really good acting, really good performances. And it's not just because I worked on it, although I'm very proud of the work that I did on it. 
I think it it's a show that people should check out because I feel like the people at Crackle and the people who make this show, including Ben Kitai and Ryan Lewis and um, Toby Wilkins, who was the uh, director of the of the third season, have figured out how to kind of mind meld an independent film and a TV series. They have a modest budget, but they're doing everything in their power to make something that is of a higher quality. I wish there was more of that in the business where a lot of people, when they have a, a low budget, they just kind of give in and go, well, this is all we can do. And on a show like this, they're taking, um, you know, again, a modest budget, not a, not a horribly low budget, but a modest budget and making, making so much more out of it than you would think they could. And I, my hat's off to them, but also I just think it's a very good show. Well, it sounds like a great show. Uh, on what platforms can you view uh, Crackle? Is it a, a Roku thing, an Apple TV? Is it a yes. PlayStation? Yes. Is it a web browser? Correct. So basically anywhere you can see Crackle, yeah. you can see Chosen. Yeah, and, okay. it's, and it's free. I have a Crackle app on my iPad. You can also get it um, for, for uh, Android tablets. You can put a, get it pretty much on anything, and it's free. You have to watch some commercials like regular television. What a concept. Uh, but uh, it's free, and the episodes are short, too. You know, I think in America, we're used to drama being an hour. This is a half-hour drama. Hmm. A season consists of six half-hour episodes. And so you can burn through seasons one and two in a, you know, in a matter of days. It's not, it's not a humongous commitment like, oh, I got to watch all of Deadwood. Nothing against Deadwood. It's great stuff. But it's like you'll, you'll go through this very quickly. And it looks like something that you would see on, uh, on network television. Or, and, and, in or, fact, or, I think they play it on television overseas. Wow. Okay. Well, that's that's uh, that says a lot. If they're uh, they're taking uh, what is a web content program here yeah. in the states and showing it overseas on broadcast television. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Cinematography Podcast, Episode Two. Very exciting, Episode Two, and we'll, we we will return with Episode Three. So, how can people reach us, Ilya, if they would like to email us and ask us questions or give us comments or feedback? They can reach us at cinematographypodcast.com, and specifically the email address is email at cinematographypodcast.com. And where can people find you? Uh, They can find me at Hot Rod Cameras, which is where we're recording the show, and also at hotrodcameras.com. And uh, are you on the Twitters? Oh, yes, I I tweet some twalks and that sort of thing, and yes, it's at Hot Rod Cameras to find us there. And Ben... Where can our listeners find you? Well, everything that you ever want to know about me can be found at benrockonline.com. Uh, you can see my reels and all that good stuff, and you can follow me on Twitter at Neptune Salad. I also wanted to mention that all of our music is done by Kays Alatracci. You can find everything about Kays at musicbykays.com. Please hire Kays and pay him lots of money. He is deserving. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next time at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.